Hi, I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're Thinking with Polit, the podcast for political posits. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this, the seventh episode of the Polit podcast. Today, we're going to go through a post I put up on the blog earlier today, entitled On Conflict in 2021. If you haven't already seen the blog post, there should be a link in the description box, either to the left, to the right, below or above, depending what platform you are listening on. Before I begin, please subscribe, follow, like, share. It would mean the absolute world to me. And just especially click on that little follow button, which should be somewhere (laughs) on the platform you're using. And also, as I say, if you haven't done so already, please go to the blog and subscribe to the email list, emailing list there. There's plenty of content that I put up maybe two or three times a week, which doesn't make a podcast episode. Uh, So if you're interested, please go to the website and uh, submit your email to be put on the mailing list. Uh, And obviously to see citations and references for everything we talk about. Okay, so today we're going to be looking at On Conflict in 2021. I'm going to try to keep this as close to 30 minutes as possible uh, because there are so many conflicts in, you know, emerging and being fought at the moment. I've had to narrow the list of the number of conflicts I think will be interesting to look at this year to five or six. Okay, so let's begin. 2020 was a landmark year for so many reasons. We saw the rise of COVID-19, a presidential election in the United States, the ascension of Black Lives Matter and questions of social injustice to the realm of global public policy, environmental disasters, plagues of locusts, (laughs) and so much more. Equally, the world experienced the Nagorno-Karabakh War, an increase of attacks by Boko Haram, the US-Iranian crisis over the killing of Qasim Soleimani, the outbreak of the Tigray clash in Ethiopia, and the continuation of conflicts in Syria, the Donbass, Yemen, Kivu, Libya, alongside ethnic cleansing in Myanmar, Darfur, and Xinjiang, to name but a few. Indeed, conflict does not seem to have disappeared in any respect as a result of the global turmoil affecting all of us in 2020 and with the passage into 2021. In addition to this, the structure and character of world order is shifting. Firstly, there are a number of macro security issues that affect all of us, but do affect some states and regions more than others, like COVID-19 and climate change. In a number of developing states, the provision of healthcare to combat the spread of the virus has caused internal economic effects that inspire further grievances and thus conflict, leading to regional instability and, in some cases, hostile regime changes. This has also been exacerbated by the impact of climate change, which has made entire regions uninhabitable, epicenters of environmental catastrophe, sites of food insecurity, and a major producer of displaced peoples that always goes hand in hand with giving power to those non-state criminal actors who claim to be able to provide public goods when governments cannot. Equally, speaking of power, on a statist level of analysis, the multipolar rise of China and other regional powers such as Brazil, India, Indonesia, South Africa, Turkey or Saudi Arabia, um, and all of this has sort of led to relative decline of US hegemonic power that the global political landscape has become accustomed to 
Since the ascension of the liberal hegemonic norms associated with the so-called unipolar moment of the 1990s, for those who are unaware, the unipolar moment was the moment in which the United States became the sort of sole superpower of global order, where it defeated the United, defeated the uh, Soviet Union, sorry, um, at the end of the Cold War, and therefore became the sort of sole um, um, power basis of international order. This claim is now bolstered by the clear emergence of non-liberal populist norms in response to the neoliberal globalised character of the status quo, clearly whispering that the liberal norms-based order is undergoing a metamorphosis into something new. With such a shift, as with past adaptations of global order, there will be the localised breakdown of peace and the emergence of violent disputes. The purpose of this short discussion will be to briefly unpack a list of conflicts that deserve popular attention in the coming year, effectively based upon the context and events of 2020. So the following list is non-exhaustive by any stretch and ordered in no particular manner. Indeed, as I've already said, there were tons of conflicts we could have put into this list, but I've decided to just go with a few. The first is Afghanistan. After almost 20 years of discord, the US signed a deal with the Taliban in February 2020 to withdraw troops in return for Taliban commitments to for forbid terrorists from using the country for operations, and to enter discussions with the Afghan government. Initially, the US stretched out withdrawal of troops over six months, which led to increased attacks and assassinations by the Taliban. Although September 2020 saw the beginning of negotiations between the Afghan government and the Taliban in Doha, despite being unclaimed by any particular militant group, suicide bombings increased in highly populated areas of Afghanistan, like Kabul, illustrating that a drive for peace may simply be lacking. Equally, with the beginning of the second round of negotiations, which started earlier on this month in January 2021, a will to locate a common ground is visibly waning with top officials of both belligerent agents absent from this round of negotiations. Afghan officials deeply distrust the Taliban or see negotiations as possibly resulting in the government's demise, believing themselves to be legitimating the Taliban in some manner. The reverse holds with the Taliban, by the way, and its own perceptions that it is on the rise precisely because it is being legitimated by these negotiations. Adding to this political context, Afghanistan experienced a moderate to strong La Nina phenomenon that caused extreme weather conditions across the region. In this case, inducing below average rainfall and dry conditions that undermined the wheat harvest. Consequently, as a result of the instability caused by conflict, the economic fallout of the COVID-19 crisis and its crop failures, this mix has led to mass, mass food insecurity in Afghanistan. Indeed, the World Food Programme, the WFP, reported in November 2020 that 16.9 million were experiencing acute or emergency food insecurity with an Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, IPC, above three. The question will become whether or not government can provide basic public goods in this context, such as access to health and nutrition, or will the population turn to non-state agents like the Taliban or other military groups in order to provide their basic needs? 
the inability to deliver basic human needs, as the distinguished thinker John Burton once became known for arguing, is almost always primary in the instigation and sustaining of conflict. So May 2021 marks the deadline set last February for the complete withdrawal of US and NATO troops. In this, there is a difficult aporia that the incoming Biden administration, which, you know, he's inaugurated tomorrow, but will have uh, to meticulously manage. Simply put, a hurried or delayed withdrawal could destabilize the Afghan government and lead to an expanded multi-party war in the wake of such withdrawal. Where US forces depart with a threat to the Afghan government still very much present. On the other hand, withdraw too slow, and this could aggravate the Taliban, leading to greater clashes in either case. In this manner, a central foreign policy goal of the Biden administration will be the reconciliation of these two options in order to support the government without alienating the Taliban, essentially to avoiding re-escalating the conflict. That's going to be the big difficulty for the Biden administration in Afghanistan. So why is this going to be difficult? This will be a difficulty for the Biden administration and it's going to take a real compromise. The question will be how, the, how to balance past agreements with the Taliban under Trump's administration and Biden's policy of instituting long-term counter-terrorism apparatuses for the sake of regional security. Basically, either there will be a compromise or something's got to give. There now needs to be steps taken in order to keep the peace process alive and to not undermine it if peace is what is wanted. If compromise and discourse, a quality perhaps commendable about Trumpian foreign policy in Afghanistan, that's for historians to decide, um, here are not wanted. The US needs to decide whether to uphold the agreement, withdrawing, or to move for its abandonment. In any case, Afghanistan is a potential site for increased violence in 2021. 2. The Sahel Unfortunately, the Sahel region of North Africa is no stranger to conflict. With recent increases in ethnically charged violence and jihadists extending their reach on the continent, the Sahel is set to be the site of hostility in the year to come. In 2020, alongside a coup ousting President Keita in Bamako, Islamist militants overran northern parts of Mali, throwing the country into a condition of instability that questions the efficacy and presence of the intervening French military. Indeed, with jihadist hostility spreading across Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger, instability remains in many ways the order of the day. The conditions on which militants thrive are proving rather difficult to reverse. In many of the states in the Sahel, government relations with rural areas have broken down, with many of these communities growing angrier with their government's inability to provide public goods and services, just like in Mali. The most common cause of such anger has come as a result of the lack of resources, which much like in Afghanistan, can be witnessed by viewing levels of food insecurity. In Mali, the WFP have indicated that 437,000 experience food insecurity of IPC3+, that's acute, and that this is expect expected to reach 955,000, almost a million, 
by August 2021. Equally, in Niger, the figure of those experiencing food insecurity has reached 1.2 million and thought to increase to 1.7 million by August 2021. Let's just take that in quickly. Sadly, in Chad, Mauritania, Sudan and Burkina Faso, the trend does not waver from this expectation of already heightened food insecurity to become worsened. Just to add to this mire, 2020 saw droughts and spells of locust swarms decrease food supplies. And this only served to exacerbate the situation even further. Subsequently, it seems to be that no authority is able to calm this long downward spiral of conflict, where all are unable to act for de-escalation. So what are the key issues to address in the Sahel? The key issues to address in the Sahel therefore concern problems of insecurity and underdevelopment. Underlying all of this is the problem of good governance, where the inability to provide public goods pushes those communities already at odds with central authorities towards insurgent and militant groups. Another key question to ask here is whether or not intervention can take place that isn't considered neo-colonial. Indeed, it appears that an increase in foreign military presence increases in unison with violence. It follows as such that a militarised approach to securing the region doesn't seem to be the answer, only adding to the conflict. If the Sahel crisis is to be resolved, if that is indeed possible, sovereign governance must be strengthened in order to address the reasons why citizens turn to jihadist groups, resolving local issues of land and resource allocation that fuel ethnic and communal conflict. When governance collapses, non-state actors will be gravitated to in order to provide public goods. Without an attempt to resolve this widespread issue of governance in the region, it is difficult to see how peace can be brought into being. 3. Western Sahara Although in a similar locality to the Sahel, Western Sahara is a territory north of Mauritania with sovereignty disputed by Morocco and the Sahrawi Arab Democratic Republic. Sorry, that took me off guard then. <laughs> Occupied by Spain in 19, until 1975, Western Sahara has been the site of conflict. First, between the Sahrawi, that's a very difficult word to say, <laughs> and I wrote this, <laughs> the Sahrawi factions in Spain over Spanish colonisation of the region, and since decolonisation between the Sahrawi Polisario Front and the Moroccan army over Morocco's claim to the territory until a ceasefire was brokered in 1991. Apologies for any pronunciation problems. <laughs> between 1991 and 2020, Tensions had not wholly simmered off, with a, series, with a series of uprisings, intifadas and protests across the territory, stemming from the Sahrawi grievances over what they considered to be Moroccan occupation. This especially took place along the, along the Moroccan Western Sahara Wall that bisects the territory into administrative districts. It's like two massive sand berms which which sort of follow a line right through the heart of the territory. On the north side is a Moroccan administration, and in the south is administered by the SADR. In 2020, the situation fundamentally shifted in Western Sahara. Alongside 
The just disastrous environmental and nutritional crisis the region is currently experiencing. In November 2020, President Bahram Ghali of the SADR brought the 29-year-long ceasefire to an end, citing clashes that had taken place with the Moroccan army along the Western Sahara Wall. With this in mind, we should not consider it a surprise if, in 21, the conflict is rekindled. Additionally, the conflict in Western Sahara has gained geopolitical significance. On the 10th of December 2020, in order to broker the normalization of relations between Morocco and Israel, Donald Trump agreed as part of the deal for the US to recognize Morocco's claim to Western Sahara, undermining past US foreign policy efforts to uphold peace. Formally speaking, this decision should have not been on the table as part of the negotiation, as the status of legal sovereignty is determined by international law and the UN, not deals brokered by the United States. The question here is simple. Will Biden backtrack on Trump's decision? That does seem to be a recurring theme. To answer this question in any affirmative manner would be speculation, no doubt. This being said, it would perhaps be costly to reverse a decision that could retract the agreement between Morocco and Israel, but a circumnavigation of international law and formal procedure doesn't really aid US claims that it is the speaker for law-based international order. Now the Western Sahara will be at the forefront of geopolitical concern, with Biden having to make a decision as to whether the deal between Morocco and Israel must be altered, threatening, threatening that particular foreign policy achievement and multilateral relations between US, Israel, Morocco, and of course the SADR. Uh, but supporting the process of international law or the reverse. This is the problem, is if Biden backtracks on Trump's decision, that might have ramifications for the normalization of relations between Morocco and Israel, which was a huge achievement, and that might break down, or the reverse, wherein the United States undermines its position as sort of the bearer of um, law-based international order. Four, Venezuela. For the past three years or so, discussion concerning Venezuela has often centered on the status and legitimacy of the Maduro regime. Indeed, it has been a number of years now since the Venezuelan opposition, alongside agents from all over the globe, pronounced Juan Guaido interim president with the prediction of Maduro's demise. Nonetheless, some years on, these acts of pronouncement appear to have been little more than failed speech acts of mere proclamation. The Maduro regime still dominates, with predictions in tatters that the regime would have fallen by this point, especially following the swearing-in of the new National Assembly in the first week of January, uh, which is dominated by Maduro's PSUV. In response to this, Juan Guido held his own swearing-in ceremony and declared that the old legislature would continue to meet and legislate. Thus, as we move into 2021, Venezuela is divided, not just socially and politically, but institutionally, with a battle for legitimation occurring between these parallel sets of dual parliaments and dual presidents. Maybe dual is the operative word, <laughs> but D-U-E-L. Sanctions have been placed on Venezuela since 2015, 
but the Trump administration increased sanctions and placed an embargo on Venezuela in 2019 that restricts all transactions with US companies. Consequently, it has been often asserted that these sanctions have aggravated the further de deterioration of the quality of life of Venezuelans, greatly contributing to a mass decrease in oil production and exports, currency devaluation, massive hyperinflation, and drastic reductions to food and pharmaceutical supplies, which have all furthered the informalization of the economy, the propagation of illegal actors, expansion in illegal industries, and significantly, possibly most significantly, a reduction in the possibility of economic recovery. With all this in mind, we should not forget that A, an economy such as Venezuela's has been thoroughly unable to combat the spread and administration of COVID-19 as a result of its inca incapability to deliver public goods, and that B, imports of pharmaceuticals would break the current embargo. Although the official statistics declare just over a thousand deaths in the country, hmm, it has been widely acknowledged by numerous human rights, human rights watch organizations that these figures are themselves not credible. What we do know, however, is that 9.3 million people are severely food insecure, IPC3+. Uh, to 2020 production, uh, food production was estimated to cover only 10 to 15 percent of Venezuela's food needs and that an estimated 6.5 million Venezuelans left the country by the end of 2020, mostly into neighbouring Colombia in order to seek refuge from the multitude of crises they face in their native home, be these crises economic, political, malnutritional or pandemic related. In all of this, of political division, economic collapse, population change, refugees fleeing, mass malnutrition and more, conflict is looming on the horizon. 5. Other tensions. There were, sadly, so many other conflicts that could have gone into this list. For the last part of this discussion, after looking at four conflicts to watch in depth above, or earlier, I will list a few sets of states that may not engage in conflict with one another, but whose tensions might begin to show all the more in 2021. So the first, unsurprisingly, is Iranian-United States relations. So the US and Iran have had somewhat complex tensions now for many years. This is common knowledge. After the killing of Qasem Soleimani in January 2020, and Iran's somewhat timid response, neither side chose to escalate the crisis further. The incoming Biden administration will be faced with a choice in response to Donald Trump's decision to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. For those who don't know, the official name of the Iran nuclear deal is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA. Um, and Trump's decision to withdraw from the JPCOA included sort of ramping up tensions last year, um, including uh, the program of sanctions that accompanied these tensions. Biden has indicated that the Iranian question will be high on his list of foreign policy priorities, firstly by continually stressing his past support for the deal, but also by nominating Wendy Sherman to serve as Deputy Secretary of State 
who was a, a former negotiator of the JCPOA in 2015. If Biden were to re-enter the US into the JCPOA, this would come with a series of negotiations in order to address US policy towards sanctions on Iran, Iranian weapons production, and more than likely a, news, a new news story, uh, the production of uranium metal in Iran that a number of stakeholders in the European Union have voiced concerns over, considering a lack of non-violent uses for these particular metals. If Biden was to re-enter the JCPOA, he risks alienating relations with Israel and Saudi Arabia, who weren't particularly thrilled with the deal, and yet if he was to continue with the Trump administration's numerous decisions to alienate Iran and not enter not re-enter and renegotiate the deal, Biden runs the danger of creating an increasingly aggressive Iran that would continue to enrich weapons-grade material, but unchecked or limited. Either way, there are numerous security concerns that are on the cards for Iran-US relations in 2021. China, India. China and India although not formally in conflict with one another, engaged in a number of border clashes in May 2020. Along the Sino-Indian border, near the Pangong Lake in Ladakh, and the line of actual control, lies territory that is disputed between China and India. As of May 2020, both states have engaged in skirmishes that have led to the death of armed personnel for both belligerents. Although talks between the two states, brokered by Russia in Moscow, occurred in September reinstating the status quo, many contend that China not only gains from this status quo, but that this is simply an impasse that will move the situation closer to further tensions yet to come. This is significant for a number of geopolitical reasons. Both China and India are regional powers, with China set to become, if not so already, a superpower in its own right. In this case, the border skirmishes are symbolic of much more than contestation for bureaucratic administration over a territory, but are themselves an insight into the ambitions of both states to lay claim to territory that is disputed in order to assert its dominance. As far as China is concerned, it has become frightfully more overt that its foreign policy is one of expansion and self-legitimation in disputed territories. One really only has to look at its attitude and policy towards Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the creation of land in the South China Sea to observe this. What we will see in 2021 in Ladakh is anybody's guess, but do not expect either belligerent to forget about the scenario anytime soon, especially for as long as Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi are premiers. And lastly, the relations between Russia and Turkey. Again, some listeners might find this particular addition rather odd. No, Russia and Turkey are not in conflict with one another, nor are there exceptionally overt tensions between them. Russia and Turkey have made this list not because of their conflict with one another, but because of their conflicts with others. Despite a ceasefire which is held since October, in Libya, Turkey supports the Tripoli-based government of National Accord, the GNA. Russia has supported a Haftar's Libyan National Army in Tobruk. In Syria, 
Turkey has been one of Bashar al-Assad's fiercest adversaries, throwing its weight behind the rebels of the Syrian National Coalition. Whereas Russia continues to aid al-Assad, an intervention which turned the Syrian war in his favour, um, and one which has been raging for a decade in March 2021. Um, that's always sort of an odd thought I found sort of writing and reading um, the other day on this, which is that the Syrian civil war in March will be a decade old, and it's still no closer to resolution. Although fighting between Russian and Turkish-backed forces has been halted in Idlib by a deal between Moscow and Ankara, an end to this instigated by either side, indeed a possibility, could trigger tensions with serious ramifications not only for the Middle East North Africa region, but also in the Central Eurasian region itself. Speaking of the Central Eurasian region, 2020 saw the war over Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Although holding a military alliance with Armenia, Russia eventually brokered the peace that brought an end to the conflict and an Azerbaijani victory, gaining influence in the region as a third-party peace broker. Whereas Turkey aided the Azerbaijani cause, both diplomatically and militarily, enabling it, enabling it to claim some responsibility for the victory and benefit from the ceasefire deal. Both states are somewhat similar in their increasingly non-Western and non-liberal norms, with both governments resting their principles on a foundation of religious legitimation. In this, in their odd, friendly, quasi-proxy antagonism, they both seek to gain through their intervention in regional conflicts. This being said, however, with their forces in such close proximity, there is always the capability for flashpoints, and with this, a decline in their relations could lead to a hot conflict between them and force a re-emergence of conflict in those areas where their brokered ceasefires are currently active. This makes the relations between Russia and Turkey one to watch for 2021. So thank you very much for listening to this seventh episode of the Pollock Podcast. Please, as I say again, go to the blog. You'll find the link in the description box somewhere for citations and more conflict. Please subscribe, click that little follow button, share, like, send to all your friends. <laughs> and next week we're going to be looking, because it's Biden's inauguration tomorrow, uh, I'd like to look at a, a combination between um, biopolitics and the discussion that a philosopher called Roberto Esposito uh, engages with on the concept of immunity and the storming of the capital on the 6th of January. Anyway, till next week. Thank you for listening. You've been thinking with Pollock.